we're going to look at one of the most painful and difficult areas of life, of, of modern life, namely divorce. It's, it's difficult because nearly all the families in Australia have been affected by this epidemic of divorce that has come upon our nation in the last quarter of a century or so. And so it is very unlikely that any of us are here have not somewhere been affected by it in our family. And of course it's difficult for those of us who have been directly affected by it because it is really a very painful process to go through for everybody and for anybody. But the priests of Malachi's day were criticised for showing favouritism in their Bible teaching. And so given that's what's said in Malachi, I can hardly leave out bits because they're uncomfortable for you to hear. I've got to say what is there as much as I can say what is there because it will be for our good, whatever it is, if God has inspired it. So the starting point for our understanding of this topic has to be faith. And so we start off firstly then with the meaning of faith because it is so commonly misunderstood that it's hard for Australians to grasp what faith is and what faith has to do with marriage. And the Macquarie Dictionary has nine different definitions of the word faith. They're only just describing how Australians use the word. And definition number two is one of the most common ways it's used. That is, faith is belief which is not based on proof. And that is how Australians frequently use the word. And if you use the word like that, one, you will not understand Christians and Christianity at all because that's never Christians never use it that way. And two, you won't understand what faith has to do with marriage either because it's got nothing to do with belief that's not based on proof. That's just, it's just a different word altogether. With this kind of meaning, faith is nothing other than a superstitious leap into the dark. This is the definition of atheists about Christianity. They think we have made up an imaginary friend and we superstitiously believe in this imaginary friend. Well, they may believe that about us, but that is not what any Christian I've ever met believes. Faith in the Bible is not used like that. Faith in the Bible comes in the context of a covenant. Now, a covenant is an agreement or a contract or a promise about relationships. Indeed, the Bible is made up of two covenants. We use the Latin word, testament. The Old Testament, the New Testament is the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, the old agreement that God had with mankind in Israel and the new agreement that God has mankind through the Lord Jesus Christ. Christianity is about having a covenant and covenants are about agreements, contracts, promises about relationship. If I were to, to promise to give you some money and you promise to give me your car in return for the money I give you, we sign the deal, we sign the registration papers and so we've made a contract, we have an agreement. I've promised you money, you've promised me your car and I may give you a deposit as a sign of my goodwill in this in my, so that you'll have trust and confidence that I will give you the money I'm promising to give you. That's an agreement, that's a contract, that's a, it's a covenant. Now in the context of a covenant, faith means what Macquarie Dictionary defines as belief which is not based on proof, no, but confidence or trust in a person or thing. Or it can mean 
the obligation of loyalty and fidelity to person to promise engagement. I've promised you something and if I'm a person of fidelity, of loyalty, you can trust me and if you trust me you will trust my promises and if you're trusting my promises you're trusting me. It's confidence, it's trust, that's what we mean by faith. That is having faith means two things, it means trusting the promises that have been made to you and it means keeping the promises that you have made to others. That's what faith has got to do with. And built into faith is this concept of promises, of covenants, of agreements, of contracts. You make a promise to me and I have faith in you. I make a promise to you and I must keep faith by doing what I've promised you. Faith is all about keeping promises, being trusting and trustworthy. Well, last week, in looking at Malachi chapters 1 and 2, we saw something of the phony religion being denounced. The priests were unacceptable to God. They were told, we're told in chapter 2, verse 2, that they should have set their hearts to honour God's name, but instead they defiled God's name by showing contempt, contempt for God's sacrifices and therefore for contempt for God. And they failed also in their ministry of teaching the Word of God faithfully. This week again we see phony religion. Phony this week because of two issues, mixed marriages and divorce. Both of which illustrate Judah's faithlessness. They didn't trust God and they didn't keep faith. They didn't keep their word. Firstly then is the problem of mixed marriages and the offerings. For in chapter 2, verse 11, as we read a few moments ago from Malachi, chapter 2, verse 11, they desecrated the sanctuary of the Lord because they were bringing, in verse 12, unacceptable offerings to the Lord. Oh, I'm sure it could have been a satisfactory one in terms that it was a lamb or it was a bull or it was the pigeon or whatever they were supposed to be offering, but it was unacceptable because while they were making offerings in the sanctuary, they were marrying foreign women, which appears not just to be a kind of national mixed marriage they were offering up to the gods, foreign gods, because remember the nation Israel was married to God, but individuals within it, it seems in verse 12, were marrying women who were foreigners. So they continued with the rites of religion, going to the offerings, going into the sanctuary, doing all the religious things that Jews were supposed to do, but at the same time denying the holiness that the nation was called to. For God's nation was chosen to be holy. Remember the word holy means distinct, separated, consecrated for God, separate from the rest. And that holiness of the people of God was to be seen in the way they lived, the clothes they wore, the food they eat and the foods they didn't eat, the day in which they remembered the Lord, the Sabbath day which was different to everybody else's day, the fact that they were not to involve themselves with foreigners, in particular they weren't to marry foreigners, they were only to marry within Israel because God's contract, God's covenant was for this people, and this people alone at this stage, this people who had to remain as his special, separate, chosen possession, the holy nation. But here they are, 
going through the religious rituals of the sanctuary, but marrying foreign wives. The second issue is the problem of divorce and offerings in verses 13 following. Again, their offerings are not acceptable and the reason is given in verse 14, namely they've been faithless to the wife of their youth, the wife by covenant. That is, they're divorcing their wives in verse 16 brings in the word which is talked of in terms of being faithless. And that's why I started this study by saying we've got to start with the word faith. We've got to understand faith and faithless first up if we're going to understand what we're talking about. We've got to understand the concept of covenant because the idea of marriage being a covenant is very foreign to the 21st century. It's not foreign, of course, to those who have a Christian marriage because that's what it's about. It's not foreign to what marriage should be because that's what it's about. But with 35% of the marriages in Australia no longer even registered by, in the government but are just de facto marriages, you start to see that the other people very often do not understand what the contract is about and the vows that they make for each other to say down by the beachside underneath birds and pigeons being released really has anything to do with a contract or a covenant. Now to understand why all this is so serious why the Lord is so hostile to them. We need to understand marriage and the covenant of marriage, which will do us all a world of good anyway, because this is something so distinctively Christian and yet so necessary for our community around about us. And so the covenant of marriage, for chapter 2, verse 14, speaks of it in these terms, that God is a witness between you and the wife of your youth, the wife of your covenant now, the witnesses to the covenant are an important part of the covenant, aren't they? You sign your piece of covenantal agreement and then you have a witness. Sometimes you have to have a JP, don't you, to witness it, to show, yes, that X is your X. I mean, if you rely just on my signature, you'd be hard-pressed to know who signed the piece of paper. But you get a witness to see that, yes, Philip has signed this document. Well, God is the witness to the wedding. He is there, he sees, he knows what you have promised and she is your wife by covenant. That is, marriage is a contract, a contract that is made with promises and obligations, promises for the future. In the Bible, marriage is seen as both symbolic and actual. The actual marriage is between Christ and his church. This is symbolised by our marriages, where a man and a woman, creatures of God, made in his image, are united by God as husband and wife. But it's important, therefore, that we understand that marriage properly is about the Lord Jesus Christ and his church. God has created a bride for his son. And each individual marriage that we have in humanity is a sign of that heavenly marriage for which God has created the world. And therefore it is really important that we understand marriage properly because it symbolises something that is so important, namely Christ and his people. But marriage goes back to creation before the fall. For God created both man and woman in his image, in Genesis chapter 1, with the commission to be fruitful and to multiply, and to fill the earth, as well as to subdue it and have dominion over it. 
Now, you may well argue that we have filled the earth today with the thousands of millions of people that we have, but that was the commission that was given to humanity. And in Genesis 2, God saw that it was not good for man to be alone and created a suitable helper for him. Suitable because he was, she was bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, that is, she's similar to me, the same as me. And suitable because she was a woman with whom he could unite. She was different to him. So marriage is true outside the church and outside of Christianity as well as inside. That is, non-Christian marriages are true marriages. For it's a matter of creation, not of the church. It's for humanity. If you get married down by the beach under the, 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 the pigeons and the seagulls and whatever it may be and make your promises to each other quoting Cahill Gibran to make sure you haven't got the faintest clue what you're talking about if you are conducting a wedding you are married you've agreed to marriage you sign the register you are married the fact that there's no Christians around no church around no prayers prayed is an irrelevance because marriage is about a man and a woman humans if they are united together, they are, in, they are married. It's even outside, the, the true outside, any specific formal ceremony. For the Bible doesn't lay down the details of the covenant or the contract for humanity. It's the reality of men and women reproducing in sexual union. That's the reality of marriage. Men and women reproducing in sexual union. For unity was part of God's intention for humanity. God didn't create lots of humanities, he created one humanity, all in his image. There is one family of mankind. And as we are to be one with Christ, so we are to be united with our spouse. In that wonderful phrase from Genesis, the two become one. That is, from the original two, all of humanity has extended and expanded, but there's no other humanity, there's only one humanity. We are all one blood, which has been very important in the history of Australia because we Christians were the only ones who believed that and so we Christians were the ones who stood up and defended the rights of the indigenous peoples of Australia in the 19th century because we believe there is one mankind all in the image of God and they have the right to life as much as anybody else has the right to life. And we had to stand against the eugenics of the atheists who wanted to get rid of the Aborigines as not being fully human, as not having any worth or value. But we argued that there is one blood for all of humanity and they have every right to be part of humanity as you and I have every right to be part of humanity because we are all made in the image of God. What makes us distinctive is God's creation of one mankind, one humanity. And this unity of all humanity is really important, but it's reflected in every individual couple. For the two become one flesh, and Malachi 2.15 reflects this plan and purpose of God, for he says, did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? 
Now, translators of this passage have found it very difficult. For it could be referring to Abraham being the one who, in seeking offspring, took a second wife, Hagar, and created all kinds of marital and family disasters as a result of it. That's why there's lots of stuff in the footnotes in your ESV about how to translate verse 15. But following the translation that's in the main text here before us, it's making a large statement about the nature of marriage itself. It's saying that God united man and woman by his spirit given to each. That there is a bonding between them that is supernatural, which will explain why parting by death or divorce is so damaging, so difficult, so debilitating, so disastrous. It's because marriage is about unity, Broken marriages, for whatever the reason, death is so devastating. One of the hardest things of a funeral is to see the widow or the widower. For it is so hard to be broken from your partner, from your spouse. And no married person at a funeral is there without thinking one day I am going to face that and I don't want to face that. I don't know how I will face that. I can't imagine facing that. Because God's way of uniting us is real. The two become one. Why did God want to unite couples? Well, Malachi 2.15 gives the answer. Godly offspring. That was his intention. That was his purpose. That is what he was seeking. You do not need this unity to have offspring, but we do need to have it to see them raised to fear and love the Lord. They all need, especially in our day, as much help as they can get. And a stable family home life is one of the most important parts of the recipe for seeing people grow up normal and sound in body and mind and in particular to be godly. The statistical correlation between unstable family background and troubled young people and young adults shouldn't need any rehearsing from me. It's true that single and divorced parents have done a great job in raising children. It's also true that some children from stable homes go off the rails. But in general, it is the united parents who have the highest success rate in raising godly offspring. Uh, Last month, Professor Parkinson from the University of Sydney Law School, who specialises in family law, uh, produced a a long study and uh, an important study that he has provided for the Australian government. In it he says, Governments in Australia cannot continue to ignore the reality that two parents tend to provide better outcomes for children than one and that the most stable, safe and nurturing environment for children is when their parents are and remain married to one another. In one sense it's not rocket science, in one sense we don't need a professor to actually tell us but in another sense our country and nation is so dumb and stupid at the moment that we actually need to have a report to tell us the blindly obvious 
It is the way of life. And of course, immediately the report was published. Cries of, oh no, no, but what about our family? We, there was a lovely letter in this morning's paper where normal families of father, mother and children have been attacked yet again as stereotypical. And somebody has written in saying they're not stereotypical, they're typical. I mean, that is the very nature of it. That was a very good answer. I'm waiting to use that next time I'm accused of stereotyping people. It's not stereotyping. It is the normality. It is the way God has created us to be. There's nothing that a man can do for his children that is more important than to continue to be united to their mother. And there is nothing that a woman can do for her children that is more important than to continue to be united to their father. Marital unity is the best context for raising children. Because that was God's purpose. That is why he was making two one. That he wished godly offspring. Now this covenant faith is the glue of marriage that makes it work. Marriage is a covenant making solemn promises for the future. Very, very unwisely, people are entering into this marriage covenant without spelling out the contract details. Frankly, I wouldn't buy any electronic good without a warranty. I wouldn't buy a used car. I wouldn't buy a new car without paperwork. I wouldn't buy a house without getting my lawyer to check out the paperwork. None of those are nearly as life-involving and costly as taking a wife or a husband. I mean, the biggest investment you ever make in your life is to get married. That is the one that affects every other thing. I mean, the car, you buy a car, it, it, it breaks, it smashes, it... Well, that's a, that costs you a lot of money, that's a disappointment, but so what? You move on. But a husband? A wife? <laughs> to enter into that contract without looking at the details, without checking out the contract, without finding out what you're promising and what you're not promising, that's just stupid. That's really dumb. But yet our society is being encouraged to do it more and more, even though de facto marriages are considerably more unstable than de jure marriages. The contract that we've set out for years, which is still the only contract that will work for us, is for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, forsaking all others, keeping only unto you as long as we both shall live. That's the contract. If ever there's a blank check, that's a blank check, isn't it? But it's the only way in which marriage will work. I don't know whether you're going to be sick in the future or whether I'm going to be sick in the future. Either one of us could be debilitated in the future. But our promise to each other is, irrespective of our health in the future, I'm sticking with you. I may be the beneficiary of my wife looking after me in my sickness. She may be the beneficiary of me looking after her in her sickness. But the commitment is, we're looking after each other, be it sickness or be it health. And you'll notice the questions in the wedding service are about the future. They are, will you? They are not, 
do you questions. Hollywood always has them as do you questions because Hollywood knows nothing about marriage other than how to have many of them. But it's not do you, it's will you. The answer is I will, not I do. The wedding is asking, will you keep faith with your spouse? Or are you so fickle and free and easy with your words that you'll make a promise now and change your mind later? Because marriage doesn't work on, I'll change my mind later. I remember a prostitute we saw come to Christ who told me that life went downhill for her from her marriage onwards because she remembered her wedding day. She said, I was walking down the aisle on my father's arm looking at my bridegroom and I was saying to myself, well, if it doesn't work, we can always get divorced. Well, if you walk into marriage on that basis, surprise, surprise, guess what happened? And her whole life unraveled until she came to Christ some years later, a decade or so later. It's the wedding promise, the covenant nature of marriage that leads to adultery being called being unfaithful. That language is still there in the English language, in modern language. I don't know what people make of it, but when they talk about, oh, he's an unfaithful husband, it means he's committed adultery. Why? Well, because he promised he wouldn't is why it is unfaithful. He gave his word. He would only be with you. And he's gone off with someone else. He is unfaithful to his word and therefore unfaithful to you. But adultery is only one form of unfaithfulness. You promise to love. And so withdrawing love is being unfaithful. You promise to honour. And so dishonouring and despising is being unfaithful. We mustn't limit unfaithfulness just down to adultery because the promises go beyond just adultery. Judah in Malachi 2 is being accused by God of marital, unfa uh, marital unfaithfulness. First, by embracing mixed marriages. How can you be one of Yahweh's people, one of Yahweh's bride, and unite yourself in marriage outside of Yahweh? In chapter 2, verse 11, Judah's action in marrying the daughter of a foreign god is breaking faith, profaning the temple and the sanctuary of God, going through religious ritual while the religious reality of a holy nation devoted to God is being denied. God has warned and forbidden foreign marriages, but underlying this command was not an arbitrary fiat of a God, who, but a whole principle of unity and childcare. You are united to God by marriage and God unites you to your spouse in marriage and you are to raise godly offspring. How can this possibly be done by marrying foreigners who do not even know Yahweh? Secondly was the issue of divorce. God was the witness at your wedding. God united you in marriage. God wants you united for godly offspring. Divorce is not part of his plan and purpose for you. God is faithful by nature and character. And God himself makes covenants and contracts with us. And he keeps his covenants and keeps his contracts. That's why we have faith in God. God sees keeping your word, even keeping it to your own hurt, as the very nature of being godly. Unfaithfulness is violent hatred. Look at verse 16. For... The man who hates and divorces, says the Lord, the God of Israel, 
covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. Few things in life are more damaging and violent than to betray somebody's trust, especially on a promise that involves all of life, like marriage does. Adultery is never love. It's lust, but not love. It's hatred, but not love. 